Welcome to another episode of Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Sobolewski, and this episode focuses on concussions and closed head injuries in children and adolescents. This particular episode is coming out just at the beginning of fall sports season here in North America. And if you're working in a pediatric emergency department, you will certainly see concussions and head injuries, especially following football games and other contact sports. This episode also features a special guest host. Brielle Stanton is a pediatric emergency medicine fellow currently training in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And no, the word yins is not uttered once during this podcast episode. Hopefully, this episode will enhance your discussions that you have with patients and families, as well as your clinical management of closed head injuries and concussions. Take it away, Brielle. Hi, everyone. I'm Brielle. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine fellow at the Children's Hospital Pittsburgh. And today we're going to take a quick dive into the different ways we can categorize head injuries in the emergency department. Closed head injuries, bump on the head, fall, these are all very common chief complaints in the PTCD. The question is, how do you differentiate the one with the subtle bleed between the one that just has a little goose egg? We're going to take a quick look at one of the most commonly used clinical decision rules in the PTCD, the PCARN head injury rule, as well as take a look at concussions, how to diagnose them, how to manage them, and what to tell your patients to give them good anticipatory guidance. As with all pediatric patients, on exam, you really want to take into account how they first look. What's their general appearance when you walk into the room? Are they making noises? Are they playing? Are they staring off? Those quick questions and details that you get can help clue you into whether A, you need to jump into your neuro exam with just a brief history, or B, you have time to get more of the full history from the patient or parent. One of the things you want to look for on exam are any type of hematoma, especially ones on the parietal, occipital, or temporal region. Frontal bone hematomas are much less concerning because the frontal bone is the strongest one in your skull. Check for signs of skull fracture, including hemotympanum and battle sign. As for the other aspects, you're going to also look at if the child is back to their baseline. This is when it really is important to get a sense of how the parent feels their child is. They're going to be the best indicator, especially when you have those difficult in the middle of the night cases when it's tough to parse out if this is normal toddler sleepy time or if this child really is a bit lethargic. For older kids, you're going to tap more into their described symptoms in clinical exam. They can tell you more about what they're actually feeling in a reliable way. The PCARN head injury prediction rule provides a well-validated clinical decision rule for these kinds of chief complaints. PCARN is the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. It's a combination of many children's hospitals across the nation that gather data together and do clinical research to provide evidence-based medicine for us to practice. The original study was an RCT that looked at over 46,000 pediatric patients at 25 children's hospitals in the U.S. The study helped derive clinical features to help stratify who might be safely observed versus who warrants immediate head imaging. It's important to note that the PCARN rule provides a fair amount of confidence and percentages of the risk of clinically important brain injury. Most people don't realize, though, that clinically important brain injury, as defined in the study, isn't just any bleed. 
In this study, clinically important traumatic brain injury is specifically described as a bleed that was leading to intubation for over 24 hours, hospitalization of more than 48 hours, neurosurgical procedure, or, of course, any head injury that led to death. Now for the rule. The main distinguisher as we look here is age, and two is the golden number. You're going to have your group that's less than two years old and the group that includes ages two and up. For the less than two group, does the patient have a GCS of 14 or less, a palpable skull fracture, or signs of altered mental status? That might include agitation, somnolence. If yes for any of these, PCARN recommends a CT as there's a 4.4 risk of clinically important traumatic brain injury. If not, you're going to move to question two. Is there an occipital, parietal, or temporal scalp hematoma, a history of loss of consciousness for five or more seconds, is the patient not acting normally per the patient, or was there a severe mechanism of injury, meaning a motor vehicle collision with patient ejection, death of another passenger, rollover, a bicyclist without a helmet struck by a motorized vehicle, a fall from greater than three feet, or if the head is struck by a high impact object? If yes, you can observe the child for four to six hours, depending on provider comfort as there is a 0.9% risk of clinically important TBI. If the answer is no to all of these questions, your risk is exceedingly low, less than 0.02%. For the two and up age group, first ask the same initial question. Does the patient have a GCS of 14 or less, a palpable skull fracture, or signs of altered mental status? If so, PCARN recommends a CT as there is a 4.3% risk of clinically important traumatic brain injury. If not, you could move to question two. Is there a history of loss of consciousness, vomiting, severe headache, or severe mechanism? Here, they define severe mechanism the same as above, with the exception of a five-foot fall rather than a three-foot fall. If the answer to both of these questions are no, the risk is, again, exceedingly low less than 0.005%. If yes, the risk is 0.9% and observation is recommended. You can take a look in the show notes and also use MDCalc to help remember and apply these rules. Now the next thing I think about with close head injury is concussion. Oftentimes, concussion and mild traumatic brain injury will be used interchangeably, but concussions really are a type of mild traumatic brain injury. In 2018, the CDC came out with guidelines for how to manage concussion, and this has been made mostly on expert opinion. In 2018, the CDC came out with guidelines for how to manage concussion, and this was made mostly based on expert opinion. They did a very thorough review of the current literature to date and made recommendations based on the level of evidence available. I'm going to highlight some of the most salient aspects for that as they pertain to us here in the emergency department. In terms of diagnosis, there are tools like the Acute Concussion Evaluation ED tool to help your frameworks of diagnosing concussion when you have a blunt injury trauma to the head with or without loss of consciousness, amnesia, or seizure. Are things like appearing dazed or stunned, being confused about the events, repeating questions, or answering questions slowly. Physical symptoms might include things like headache, nausea, vomiting, balance problems, dizziness, blurry or double vision, fatigue, drowsiness, photo or phonophobia, numbness, or tingling. Cognitive symptoms include things like difficulty concentrating, difficulty remembering, or feeling foggy. 
Emotional symptoms may include irritability, emotionality, or the patient saying that they just don't feel right. Symptoms that may also be seen include sleep disruption or drowsiness. Here are some of the things that you wanna check on physical exam. You wanna do a thorough head and neck exam as well as a complete neurologic exam. You might see some imbalance or a gait instability with concussions, though you wouldn't truly expect to have focal deficits with a concussion. Don't forget to check facial bones and dentition in a patient who has fallen. Also, look for things that might clue you into other diagnoses, like the influence of drugs or alcohol. The downside to CT, as we all know, is the radiation risk. While low, the risk of cancer, mainly brain malignancy or leukemia with head CTs, is not inconsequential. Data has shown that two to three head CTs could triple the risk of brain tumors and five to 10 CTs can triple the risk of leukemia. Risk increases with radiation dose and decreases with patient age, with kids who are less than five at the highest risk. One large retrospective study in 2014 projected a lifetime attributable risk of solid cancer of up to 17.5 per 10,000 head CTs and a projected risk of leukemia of up to 1.9 per 10,000 head CTs. For solid cancers, females had higher risks of solid tumors than males. That being said, the radiation dose is not always standardized, so become familiar with your hospital's protocol and if lower pediatrically dosed CTs are a possibility. The references to those studies I alluded to are in the show notes. Honestly, no head imaging is indicated at the acute period for concussions at this time. Not a head CT, not a conventional MRI. Those aren't really going to add any benefit as head imaging is normal in the acute setting of concussion, unless you're trying to rule out a traumatic hemorrhage. In that case, you should just go ahead and get your head CT. Some institutions are now utilizing rapid or quick brain MRIs to help expedite and do a cursory MRI of the brain. These may gain more popularity as we get more data on how they can be utilized in the trauma setting as well. Definitely something to keep an eye out for in the trauma world ahead. There aren't any current lab markers that have been validated to diagnose concussion. However, the FDA recently did approve glial fibrillary acidic protein in ubiquitin C terminal hydrolase L1 in traumatic brain injury. More research is needed to see if these will have any use in kids with mild TBI. Right now, the CDC guidelines state that there is insufficient evidence for any biomarker use. As for prognosis, most patients will recover within 14 days of concussion, but as many as 30% of patients seen in the ED may develop prolonged post-concussion symptoms, as demonstrated in a recent large multicenter study by Zemeck. Risk factors for prolonged post-concussion symptoms include prior concussions, it increases with number, chronic headaches, or migraines. Patients with neuro or psych disorders, learning disabilities, lower cognitive ability, or family and social stressors, along with older patients or more severe initial symptoms, may also have prolonged recovery courses. Additionally, it is important for patients in terms of management to discuss what things to look out for, what things to be expected, and what they can do at home. Some patients will need to be given information on pain medications such as ibuprofen and acetaminophen. 
You want to remind patients not to use these, though, for longer than five to seven days in a row, as these can lead to further rebound headaches. Some patients may need a few doses of ondansetron to get over the initial nausea so that they can stay hydrated during this period. Return criteria should include worsening pattern of vomiting or severe headache, change in mental status, new unsteady gait, or seizure. The classic teaching was to give mostly rest and recover instructions in the emergency department. They should be able to go home and not partake in schoolwork for the first 24 to 48 hours, after which they can take a stepwise approach to returning to schoolwork and activity. As an emergency physician, you shouldn't necessarily be the one who's going to clear a patient to go back to sports because you don't know what their exam is going to be like at that time. Given that, what I will typically do is say, take it easy for the next two days, try to really limit the screen time, reading, and any eye strain in general over the next 48 hours. If your symptoms are completely gone, light activity is probably fine, but you should still see your primary care doctor so that they can clear you for these activities. More recent studies are showing that earlier aerobic activity may lead to better outcomes and additional randomized control trials are underway. So if they can get that follow-up appointment within 48 to 72 hours, that's probably a great idea. The biggest thing you want to avoid with concussions is that re-injury and second impact syndrome, which is why it's so important to avoid sports and any increased chance of getting another injury or blow to the head in the acute window. That's why it's rather imperative for kids with concern for a concussion during practice or a game to really sit it out rather than just play through. It can be more damaging than you think. Additionally, for those patients that have had multiple concussions, persistent symptoms, or for those that are high performance or elite athletes, it is probably beneficial for them to see a concussion specialist, which may include a neuropsych evaluation. These aren't always available in the community hospital setting, but there are certainly lots of recommendations on the AAP and CDC websites, which we have linked here in the show notes. Well, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and hope you learned a bit more on pediatric head injuries. All right. So that's it for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Thank you again, Brielle, for all of your contributions and hard work in putting this episode together. She came to me with the idea to produce this episode, and it was my pleasure to collaborate on it with her. If anybody else is interested in teaching something about pediatric emergency medicine and learning the podcast production process, don't hesitate to reach out. And frankly, one of the best parts about doing this podcast has been the opportunity to mentor and get to work with so many colleagues in the production of asynchronous online audio education. And if you've got any ideas for topics or have feedback about the show in general, shoot me an email, a direct message on Twitter, or if you have the time, leave a review on your favorite podcast site. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.